This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Grace, grace, grace community, 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 and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Studies have shown that students who were assigned reading and content in a very difficult-to-read font ended up retaining more information and scoring higher on exams than the students who were given the same information in a font that was very legible. We also know from studies that people who try for a career and fail early on, but then try again, have better success professionally in the long term. We also know that groups of people who are more diverse tend to produce more creative and effective solutions to problems, even though the way that they get to them may be more difficult. Things that challenge us help us to focus up and to grow. Our physical bodies grow stronger with effort and with resistance. Spiritually, we are told by James that the testing of our faith produces endurance. This truth, this spiritual truth, can, though, be tough for us to really settle into when we are just feeling extra weary from life. But for those of us who belong to Christ, when we are feeling like we want to tap out on some of that endurance-producing, strength-building stuff in our life— we have to work on exercising a spiritual muscle, sharpening a spiritual reflex of remembering. Remembering in our exhaustion that there is a catalyst for why we can't endure, why it is that we can never stop having hope, and why it is that hardship and struggle in our present circumstances, it's not the be-all and end-all. And the catalyst for these things, for us to be able to hold on to and remember these things, comes from a real historical event when our God did something to set hope into motion. A moment in time that really was the darkest and most hopeless thing that could ever happen. And he does this by enduring pain and hardship. Jesus himself gets through struggle and suffering because he's fixating what is on the other side. The author of Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So our God has well acquainted himself with what it means to get through by having hope and by remembering what is on the other side. And so today we're going to see this unfold in what I think is one of the most emotionally moving narratives in scripture. At this point in our movement through John, Pastor Daryl has taken us through the crucifixion, through the burial of Jesus. And he noted for us the women that were present at the cross, and that includes one Mary Magdalene. Many of you know I have an especially strong affection for her. Mary. Tradition tends to call her a prostitute, but she's not. We never see that in the text. What we are told in Luke chapter 8 is that Jesus casts seven demons from her. 
So his first encounter with Mary is when she is in captivity and darkness. Jesus shows up, frees her, and then she leaves everything behind to dedicate her life to her liberator. All that she is is wrapped up in him. So imagine with where we are in the story, what she has just witnessed. Mary and the other women who followed Jesus on this earth, they endured and they bore witness to his suffering and his agony. They stayed through the suffering of the one that they loved the most because they wouldn't leave him there. They last to the bitter end. Their love, strength, and devotion. The women who followed Jesus remained present and faithful even through unspeakable trauma. So it should not be surprising to us that who Jesus selects to appear to first after his resurrection is Mary Magdalene. Other gospels mention other women being present at this time. And at one point, even in our text today, she does say we, but John chooses to focus on her alone. So either this is just an issue of logistics. The women were arriving and leaving at different times. And there's this moment when she is left alone. Or John is really wanting to highlight her importance in the story and her role in the early church. So with that context in mind, Please join with me and we will read John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out, heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then, following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying, As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus's body had been lying, one at the head, the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. She did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, 
Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. So it was custom in Palestine for people to visit the tomb of a loved one in the first three days after they died. It was believed that for three days, the spirit kind of hovered around that place until the body started to decay and become more unrecognizable. But Jesus's friends could not have come on the Sabbath because it would have broken the law. They had to wait. So very early on the third day, Mary ventures out. The Greek is this technical term here of before dawn, meaning the last of the four watches of the night. So this is between three and 6 a.m. Mary loved Jesus so much that she can't stay away any longer. Even though she is vulnerable, going out alone as a woman and as a follower of Jesus, they just killed him. Who else could they be coming for next? This is why the men are currently in a locked room. But Mary risks herself to care for the body of Jesus, to visit him. So just imagine working through fear because of this honor that she desires to bring to him. Her love for Jesus outweighs her fear for herself and her own safety. And also just imagine what the past couple days have been like for her the trauma of what she witnessed, being just crushed mentally and emotionally, the suffocating weight of grief, the heaviness over her spirit in the cold dark of the early morning. Hope is gone. The worst has happened. For two days, Mary has lived with this reality that none of us thankfully will ever have to live a moment with. Her reality is Jesus is gone. And as she opens her eyes that morning after restless sleep, if she even slept at all, that first thought just hitting her again, this wasn't a bad dream. He's not here anymore. So after a heavy walk, Mary arrives in the dark at the place where they bury the dead and is shocked to find that the stone over the entrance has been removed. The word here that this is that the stone was lifted out tombs had this groove in the ground where a circular stone would be rolled into place. So the stone was lifted up out of its position. This is a cause for concern. This may have even been something that they were afraid of that we kind of get some from context clues here. That the authorities might take Jesus's body after not being satisfied with just killing him. Also, graves were often robbed. Maybe that had happened. So a removed stone is legitimately concerning for Mary and not knowing what to do, she runs to get Peter and John. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. So hearing this, Peter and John book it to the tomb and you have to appreciate John's flex, making sure to mention that he can run faster than Peter. 
So John says, I won this foot race to the grave, but when I get there, I don't go in first. He only looks likely out of this legitimate concern over the entire situation. But where Peter may be a little slower when it comes to the physicality, he tends to make up for in his lack of hesitation to just push through situations where others are tentative. Peter gets such grief over this so often, but I love that Peter is just kind of quick to the draw. He goes right in, none of this lingering outside, speculating. Let's go in and see what's going on. So what they see is the cloths that Jesus was buried in are still there. So if there were grave robbers, they wouldn't have left that behind. Also, the positioning of the cloths is perplexing. The Greek phrasing of this indicates here that the cloths were still in their folds for the body with the head cloth folded next to them. So that means that they are lying there as if the body of Jesus had just been evaporated out of them. And that he then takes a moment to neatly fold the head cloth. And I love these details. It makes me think of this moment for Jesus when he comes back to life. This moment before anyone arrives. When this body that had been laying in the dark, still cold, torn up, suddenly starts to warm again as the heart that had been stopped starts beating. When these lungs that had been emptied of breath suddenly fill again for the first time. When after lying completely still, his body sits up. In the dark and quiet early morning in this place where the dead lay, the trajectory for the world and its people turns over. Everything changes now. With the first beat of that heart, nothing will ever be the same again in the best possible way. And Jesus knows in that moment what he just did. He knows when he sits up, the far-reaching, life-altering implications of what God just accomplished. He knows what powers he just disarmed. He knows what fears he just obliterated. He knows what he just set into motion in terms of reconciliation. He knows what he just secured for his people, no matter what life brings. Nothing is ever the same again and for eternity. But in this moment for Peter and John, what they see before them is probably a little confusing and jarring. John goes in after Peter, not without noting again, just so we don't forget, I still got to the grave first. I have so many questions about the relationship. But John goes in. It says he sees and believes, likely recalling in that moment what Jesus had predicted, what he had said about his purpose, seeing the evidence, trying to piece together what could have happened. And with nothing else happening there at that moment, they leave. They go back to the place where they are staying. But you know who doesn't leave? You know who does not leave the last place that she knew Jesus to be? It's Mary. Faithful, brave, steadfast, ride or die, Mary Magdalene. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. 
she remains weeping for her missing Lord, her hope, her teacher, and her friend. And through tears, she gazes into the tomb. It's probably becoming a little brighter now. She can see a little bit more. When suddenly two angels in white appear before her, sitting, not standing, sitting to have this posture of we've finished some business. We're just here waiting to tell you something. And they wait to show up until it's just her there, the last holdout. Mary, in a dark, hopeless, confusing situation, when angels suddenly just pop up, she receives this with such a steadiness. Woman, why are you crying? When we see woman in the text in the New Testament and here, it's not this flippant, scoffing woman. Come on. This is a woman that is a respectful and reverent addressing. Woman, why are you crying? So Mary, at this point, likely thinks his body has been taken and reburied. Something horrible might be done to it. I don't know where they've taken my Lord. I don't know what is being done to him. She is so concerned about the status of Jesus, even when it is just his body. Is there any follower of Jesus that we see in the text that is more devoted than her? And she turns and she sees a man standing there. Woman, why are you crying? Who who are you looking for? Jesus doesn't just jump out, surprise, it's me. He instead does what he tends to do thoughtfully brings people on a journey, inviting them to respond to him, inviting them into the process. And so for Jesus, he waits to show up on the scene until it is just her, the one that he has chosen to see him first. And he sees her, watches her, overcome with grief at the loss of him. Mary thinks he's the gardener, which really is not far-fetched because she probably just saw a silhouette because of light. She has been crying. Also, we have to remember, she's not expecting to see Jesus standing upright before her. Please tell me where he is. Please tell me where I can get the body so I can take care of him. Overwhelmed by loss, grief so great it's hard to breathe, hopelessness, what is next now that all is lost? suddenly everything stops when she hears a voice that she knows just by how it says her name. Mary. Jesus calling her by her name cuts through it all. It is what jolts her back from the wave of anxiety and grief. Rabbi my teacher, my guide, my life. Can you imagine the shock and the magnitude of relief and joy that just rocks her whole body? He's back. He's not lost. He's not gone. She saw him take his last breath. She saw him bleeding out. She saw them thrust a spear into his side. She saw them take the body down. She saw it laid in a tomb and now he's back right in front of her, not as a vision, not as a spirit. He is actually flesh. The impossible has just happened. 
And this woman so faithful to Jesus through his life and his death is given the honor as the first to see him after he took all of the punishment and judgment for the evils of the world and the sin in human hearts and shut death down. Mary sees him first on the other side. When you have amazing news, who do you tell first? Those who've been, you know, hardcore with you along the journey because the magnitude of what the good news means will really affect them. You tell people who understand why the news is so good. People who will give us an incredible response because they're going to be so overjoyed along with us. For Jesus, Mary Magdalene is this person. I want you to hear first, the best news in the history of the world. And I think we often still think of only a serious stoic Jesus, super composed all the time. But we have to remember he had all the emotions. He had vibrant relationships with people. This is who he wants to share this excitement with first. So imagine him just as she comes undone with overwhelming excitement, tears of grief becoming tears of joy, him smiling, laughing, taking part with her in this shockingly glorious moment. So they take a moment and then he says, okay, so I'm not going anywhere yet because she is just clinging to him. This is not a word of just touching, but this is actually like holding on, which of course she is. Clinging not just in surprise and joy, but there is this posture of, I am not letting you out of my sight again because you being gone was really not great. It was awful. But Jesus says, don't keep clinging on to me right now. Something I need you to go and do. Jesus could send angels to do this. He himself could just kind of pop up wherever, handle spreading the news himself. But from the get-go, the first thing Jesus does after he ascends from the grave is invite people into his work of bearing this hope to the world. And he hasn't stopped since. Her task is ours still. Don't hang on to me. Don't cling to me yet, Mary. I'm not fully ascending yet. Still going to be here for a little bit. And I know you're so excited. It's been great celebrating with you for this moment, but there's work to do. And I have a task just for you that you can do without me physically being present with you. This ascending language, this tasking of her to do the work, even while he might not physically be with her, inklings of this helper that will come. Now, a woman's testimony was legally worthless in their context. Jesus tends to not bend to the confines of social conventions, and he actually often does the opposite. So the task is not, go get John so I can tell him to proclaim this. Since he's a man, it's what I prefer. Also, um, men will be believed. Also, I've heard John super fast. He's more up for the task. What he tells her is, Mary, you go. You go and tell. With your voice, your body, with who you are, you go tell them what God just did. 
Go tell them how the worst thing that ever happened now brings their greatest hope. The first person tasked with declaring the fullness of the gospel is the woman, Mary. Someone not trusted because of her gender, someone with a tough past is given the high honor, the greatest truth of all time, the first proclaimer. Guess what? He was dead. He's alive again. I saw them kill him. It was awful, but I've seen him again. That couldn't even stop him. He said my name. He spoke with me. I touched him. He's real. He's back. Jesus is alive. The resurrection takes Mary from a place of overwhelming grief to a visceral hope and a spurring on to do the work tasked by God. It takes her from being in darkness into light. It takes her from feeling abandoned and having a loss of purpose in her life into being named, into being given a fullness of identity, and into being called to, equipped for, and sharpened up for the greatest task in all the world. And her task in this moment, the first command from a glorified Jesus is what we are given as well. Mary for physical, spiritual, emotional witness to the actual death and resurrection of Jesus. And as the people of God here, those whose names he's called, whose identity he's reshaped, whose purpose he's ignited, we are here with right now, with all we are, to bear witness to the death and resurrection of our Savior and to proclaim that with our words, with our actions, with our values, with how we respond to trials, with how we treat other image bearers. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says in his letter to the church in Corinth, we always carry the death of Jesus in our body. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. As Christ, you carry the death and resurrection of Jesus in your body so that for the purpose of, to the magnificent end that the life of Jesus is on display in your body. What you think, what you say, what you do and what you care about and what you work for and what you're trying to cultivate in this world. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is not just a truth we remember. It is not just an event we occasionally reflect upon. For those of us who know Christ, we embody this all the time. We are living sacrifices. We are the physical presence of a resurrected Christ in this world together. Our redeemed lives and our forgiven souls are what bear witness to what he has done and who he is. And with all we are, we are to demonstrate this Jesus in the world in the here and now. We don't just remember the resurrection occasionally so we can celebrate. Resurrection is also not supposed to be something that when there's a whole lot of tough stuff going down, that we recall it and just magically we want to meet all the challenges with um, a whistle and a skip in our step. Rather, 
the resurrection is what literally takes us from being guaranteed death into having a life secured. The resurrection is what takes us from separation from God into being so reconciled back to him that nothing can ever separate us from him again. The resurrection is what grants us the capacity and the power to have grit and resilience and resolve at the end of the day when everything is falling apart around us. The resurrection is what enables us to echo the psalmist in declaring, we will not be afraid though the earth give way. The resurrection is what enables us to echo Job that after losing his wealth, his family, his position, his security, his health, just one thing right after another, at the end of the day, even while he has felt all the emotion and grief of this, he says, but I know, even in the midst of this, but I know that my Redeemer lives. I know he lives and at the end, he will stand on the dust and I will see God myself. We'll see him face to face. So the resurrection doesn't communicate that God owes us blissful, pain-free, rosy life. It's not an escape plan for us to get out of earth completely unscathed. Actually, if you remember in our story working through John, not too long ago, Jesus actually went pretty hard in giving us a heads up that following me, belonging to me, means life is going to be tough. He let us know. We are meant to be a people who do hard things, who choose the narrow way. Just read about all the saints who have gone before us. Just look even at what he asks Mary to do. Go do something that your society, your culture, your community says that you have no place to do. And what you don't get from Mary here is, so Jesus, I just want to remind you that I've kind of been through a lot the last couple of days. So I would like it if you could just put a pause on me joining you in the work for now. She receives the command, the invitation, and she can go even in the midst of trials because of what he just did. The resurrection is the catalyst for what empowers us to go through a life of struggle, a life of challenge, and still be faithful and fruitful. The resurrection provides us with the hope that we need in the middle of it to be assured that our struggle is not in vain. Because of the resurrection, we can have a greater vision about the trials of our life because our Jesus is alive, he's not dead, which means he's coming back for us and he's coming back to fully and finally reconcile and restore all that has been broken in creation. Power of the resurrection is what gives us legs to stand on when we're feeling pressed because we have with us and in us a power that in the end, come what may, cannot be beat. That was proven when Jesus took a step out of that tomb. He already dealt a death blow to the worst of villains and the greatest of enemies. And in one fell swoop, Jesus sets us free from punishment and bondage and at the same time 
gives us the greatest of gifts in himself. He saves us and gives us so much all at once. That's who we are reconciled back to. That's who we are on a first name basis with, no matter what happens. This is who we have with us today. This is who we're going to have with us on Tuesday and all the days after that. And while this doesn't just magically change our circumstances or even how we feel about it at times, as gods, this hope does secure us in the midst of it. The resurrection is here to help us remember not all our hope is lost. We have to remember that we have a God who has done something this miraculous and powerful. We have a God who is present right now and is working in his people. And we know how this story will resolve in the future. The resurrection is why we can remember and hold on to the truth, the fact that even when life is coming at us on every side, the greatest threat to us has already been taken out. It is only because of the resurrection that the testing of our faith does develop endurance. What could take you down in the end, it's already handled. So ground yourself there. Ground yourself in the resurrection. Hold on to that hope. Don't forget to make it a rhythm of remembering and take heart, church. Embody his crucifixion and his resurrection in this world because this world really needs it. It needs him. And he has tasked us with that and given us all that we need in order to accomplish it together. In a letter that Paul wrote to the Roman church, he explains it this way. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe. We believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, so church, you too consider yourself dead to sin. Consider yourself today alive. Consider yourself resurrected to our God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is quite fitting as we finish up here that we take a moment together with this to take part in communion. Communion is this physical, tangible way to rehearse and remember and take part in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, which is embodied in us as his followers. This time of communion is for those of us who know and belong to God, for us to join together. The eating of the bread, the drinking of the cup is this affirmation, this, yes, 
I have, because of the glorious mystery of his power, been joined with him in his death and his resurrection. And we take part in this with hearts of thankfulness, with conviction, out of humility, and with hope. This taking of communion, this sitting in this truth is an act of faith. Saying, God, we trust what you have said of this is true. So if you have the elements before you, if you belong to God, please join with me and the other saints. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this whenever you eat of it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took up the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood poured out for the remission, for the forgiveness of your sins, for the sins of the world. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. So with hope in what he has done, in what he is currently doing, and what he will accomplish in the end, eat and drink. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the magnitude of what your work on the cross what your resurrection has accomplished for us individually, but also, Father, what it has accomplished for your world. Father, I pray that for our hearts where they are weary, that we're exhausted, where we're worn from this life right now, that your resurrection and the truth of what this is and what this means for us would actually bear forth hope for us. Father, where we need to understand how that connection even takes place, we just ask you for help. I thank you, Father, that you are not a God who just speaks truth heavy over us and expects us to figure it out or make it work out on our own, but Father, that your spirit can help us. Your spirit is what helps us, Father, to be able to even have hope in what it is that you have done and will do. So I just ask for all of us as your people, just even going into this week, that you would help us to even understand, to feel, to know what it is to have hope. May the reality of who you are, may the reality of your actual presence that is still here with us, may that bear us up this week. And Father, we ask this, not first of just a desire for things to be easier, but Father, we ask for your help with this because we long to be fully your body here present in this world, demonstrating you well in all of the spaces where you have us right now. We can't do that on our own, so please help us. We thank you for the ways that you have been faithful to us in the past, the ways that you are faithful to us now, and we trust, Father, that you will be faithful in the future. We love you and in your name we pray. Amen. Please hear the benediction.
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine. To him be glory both in the church and in Christ Jesus, now and forever. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.